Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Beck and Maria Shabla. Today on Behind the Warrior podcast, we are speaking to U.S. Marine Corps EOD combat veteran retired Staff Sergeant Timothy Brown. Tim joins us from Houston, Texas, and we are looking forward to him sharing his story with us today. Welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast, Tim. Thank you, Sherry. I'm uh, glad to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. So we're going to jump right in, Tim, and uh, tell us where you grew up and, and what led you to joining the military. Well, they're both kind of related. Uh, I'm originally from San Antonio. Uh, that's where I was born and where I lived the first 15 years of my life. So that always uh, kind of impacted my uh, desire to uh, to serve. Um, you know, let let everyone in on a secret here. I did originally want to be in the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and but, and why uh, was that, Tim? Why did you want to be uh, in the Air Force? Uh, well, because I grew up in San Antonio. Mm. Um, you know, at that time, all five bases uh, were still active. Uh, Brooks and Kelly were still uh, active Air Force bases. I grew up with uh, C-5s flying around overhead like whales in the sky. And I used to always look up at them uh, as a kid and say, like, well, I want to do that. I want to be a pilot. Uh, and then around fifth grade, uh, you know, my eyes went bad when I'm eating glasses. Uh, of course, can't be a pilot with glasses. and I, I didn't know anything about LASIK or any of that stuff at the time. Uh, this is, well, I guess, mid-90s. And um, but coincidentally, around that time, uh, my parents sent my brother off to uh, a military school in South Texas. Uh, it's called Marine Military Academy. It's down in Harlingen, Texas. And it's a uh, residential uh, military academy boarding and prep school that's uh, run pretty much entirely by Marine. Uh, I think they had one British Royal Marine. Uh, aside from that, they were all U.S. Marines uh, that ran this, this school. And you know, being that I always looked up to my brother and pretty much everything, um, you know, I instantly fell in love with uh, Marines through this school. Um, you know, fun fact about the place is they have one of the, the original seven castings of the Iwo Jima monument. So it's, you know, it's that big of a deal. And uh, I didn't get to a, attend school there. Um, you know, it's kind of a pricey place and you know, my parents couldn't afford to send my brother there and then immediately after mm -hmm. uh, i did manage to get to one of their summer camps uh, which is kind of like a you know six week eight week long whatever it was mini boot camp thing uh and really from that point on when i was about 10 uh being a marine is the only thing i ever wanted to be uh, i've never had aspirations to do anything else other than join the corps um arranged my whole life about it all the books i've read in you know, high school revolved around me wanting to be a marine when everyone else is reading Harry Potter and fiction and stuff like that, I was reading biographies of Robert E. Lee, George Patton, and you know, all this uh, nonfiction war type stuff. Um, so it was never a question for me. Um, you know, this a really common question is a lot of people wonder if we you joined the Marine Corps because of 9-11 or something like that. And um, you know, my my decision was already made well before that. Uh, my decision changed a little bit when I didn't uh, do so well at University of Houston. 
Uh, originally, I'd wanted to be an officer uh, in the Marines because you know, I grew up around. Uh, well, we had a few veterans in the family. You know, we had a lot of people that didn't know as much about the military as they let on. And, you know, I was like, I want to go be an officer because I want to be you know, a leader and I don't want to be a grunt, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this teenage crap that, you know, as I look back on, I was like, man, that's kind of the opposite of what I actually turned out to want. Um, but it worked out well that I didn't make it because I couldn't have been an EOD tech um, if I had gone the officer route as a Marine. So, oh, okay. Um, when I when I failed most of my classes in electrical engineering at U of H, I, uh, you know, had to change my plans and enlist instead of commission and, and came in a little bit early. Uh, so I, I signed the contract in, I think, June of 2003, uh, shipped to MCRD San Diego in November uh, 2003. Uh, first step put on the Yellow Footprints on November 17th. Mm-hmm. And um, wound up being uh, communications, uh, which wasn't really what I was looking for when I worked with a recruiter, you know, same old story. Everyone has an idea of what they want to do. They go to a recruiter and they get lied to and you want to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I came in thinking I was, I wanted to be counter Intel cause I watched too many movies and, uh, you know, the, the recruiters didn't, didn't tell me at the time that counter Intel was a, a lat move only career. At that time I didn't even know what a lat move was, um, which wouldn't matter to them either way. I was, I was going to enlist. Uh, so they told me, Hey, we got this thing, communications, it's kind of like Intel. And, you know, even as he told me that, I was like, yeah, no, that's not right. But okay. Um, so I agreed to that thinking I was going to want to be in a, uh, you know, some kind of a, a data network operator or something. Uh, instead I wound up a radio operator. Um, one of my, uh, drill instructors in boot camp was, uh, was in comm also. He was a multiplexer operator. And uh, used to castigate me all the time about why me and my astronomically high GT score were being a radio operator. And I was like, well, that's a good question. You should probably take that up with my recruiter. Um, but, uh, but I wanted to be in radio. I uh, spent four years uh, as a radio operator, uh, deployed twice um, to combat theaters as a radio operator. Uh, the first time was with 1st Marine Regiment uh, in 2004. Uh, deployed to Camp Fallujah, where I spent the 2004 uh, Operation Alphazer invasion of Fallujah. Um, didn't really see or do a whole lot. You know, worked in the COC mostly, uh, making sure all the radios work, which is you know always a full time job trying to keep some immature major uh, from turning down his own volume. <laughs> but um, I did that for a while. You know, sometimes you go into the city for, um, you know, to the Ford COC and I'd opt as, you know, operate as a direct radio operator instead of just, you know, a radio maintainer. Um, came back to the States uh, on the way, came back to the States and, uh, you know, spent a couple months there. And then right around that time, they got a call for individual augments to go to Afghanistan. Uh, and I was already getting pretty disillusioned with the stupidity of a communications unit when you're not in war. Because, um, honestly, you really don't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody busts out radios aside from a field op uh, stateside. So mostly we just stand around and pretend to be busy. And that's, that's basically it. Um, so we got this these call for uh, individual augments to go to Afghanistan. So my hand immediately shot up. Uh, so... Four months after I returned home from Iraq, I was 
heading out to Afghanistan. Uh, this was back in 2005. Um, it was a much different Afghanistan then than the, the one I would come to uh, find later on in my EOD deployment. I got attached to the National Guard, uh, the unit out of Texas, um, coincidentally. Uh, they were based out of Laredo and uh, you know, was a radio operator for those guys. And like I said, it was a totally different Afghanistan then. You know, we were we were not doing you know kinetic combat movements and things like that. We were uh, you know kissing babies and immunizing goats and stuff like that. Uh, got to see you know a promise what of of what Afghanistan could have been mm-hmm. uh, in Jalalabad then you know, a fully functioning um, society, uh, bustling economy, point where you know there was relatively little danger uh, for us during our deployment then. Wow. I think the whole nine months I was there, there was one small IED attack on a Humvee. Um, I think it ruptured one of the gunner's eardrums. That was basically it. Um, and then one direct fire attack where some guys shot at a convoy from a tree line as it drove by. Um, you know, pretty much you know, much ado about nothing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really gave us, you know, an opportunity to see, you know, what Afghans are like as a people and um, you know what they were trying to build their country into at that time and, and at that time seemed to be succeeding right um, you know we visited universities we visited uh, you know schools for girls uh, there was a rug making factory that employed uh, young Afghan girls um, to give them purpose and and an opportunity uh, we met with doctors we met with the governor often um, you know, got to go up in the mountains and help immunize some goats and stuff like that. Uh, ran in terror when, when a giant Brahma bull decided he wanted to turn around and come charging out the chute. <laughs> uh, I jumped down the Humvee because uh, I was not, I did not grow up on a ranch in Texas by any stereotypes. So I don't know my ass from my elbow when it comes to cattle. So I just got the hell out of there. Um, luckily, many of the uh, uh, National Guard members uh, around Laredo had grown up on ranches, so okay. uh, one of the one of the bigger guys went up and straight up lassoed this uh, this Brahma from his feet. Um, no horse, no no anything. Just stood there and, and brought this uh, this Brahma down so they could immunize him and stuff like that. Wow, um, that had so to be something to see. Oh, it was like we're all we were basically if you had popcorn, you would have <laughs> made it and and sat there and watched like let's see if this guy could do it. And sure enough, he did. Um, so. Much as much crap as we talk about the National Guard, they're good at many things that that normal soldiers are not. That's right. Um, you know, not many soldiers can lasso anything, right? Like a large bull. And uh, but I came back from Afghanistan. Um, by this point, I'd I'd learned a little more about what counterintelligence was. Uh, I still wanted to do that job, and uh, you know, started my process to try and might move into that career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long process, significantly uh, more involved and difficult than the EOD screening process. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to go take a million new tests. Um, you know, besides the ASVAB, you had to take D Lab and, and some other, I don't know, like a reading comprehension test or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Had to uh, write a research paper, and um, unlike my roommate who had who had previously done the their screening, I wasn't so blessed with a general topic like Jordan, like he had. I got to write a 10-page research paper on a terrorist group named Ansar al-Sunnah. Um, 
And, you know, as with any academic research paper, there were limits to the kinds of sources I could use. Um, you can only use a couple of internet sources. Everything else had to come from a, you know, an actual hardbound book. Uh, and this group is only about two years old. Um, so I wound up having to go all the way up to the UCLA library and be a college student again, uh, trying to search uh, search for info on this group and write the paper on them. I had to do some more tests. And then to top it all off, they have uh, what can be best described as a three-hour-long interrogation um, where you sit with one officer and two staff and CEO uh, Marines who are already in the field. And they interrogate you and grill you for three hours um, because there's a, uh, there's certain kind of skills you need with counterintel. And, you know, as, as cool as I thought the job was, you know, uh, it came down to needing uh, a good set of social skills and the ability to, to talk yourself into and out of anything uh, without people realizing it. And, you know, that really wasn't me. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not particularly social and I'm fairly blunt. So, um <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, those those two didn't get along. At the end, they told me, "We think you'd make a great analyst." And I was like, "Ah, cool! You can go fuck yourself." Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I don't, don't want to do analysts. I've seen those guys; they just sit around and print maps all day. That's lame. Um, so, you know, after that, I was I was pretty despondent. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my you know career in the Marines. I actually considered getting out, which for me was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to take some that. That was the only want I ever wanted, and you know, think that you know it wasn't going the way I wanted it to go. Uh, I was trying to decide if you know if I wanted to stay in common and reenlist. I could put in request for a new unit, but who knows where that'll go in four years? Uh, and around that time, my best friend uh, Dave Lyon oh. uh, had finished up his uh, EOD school and had gotten stationed back out of Miramar. whatever unit he was attached to there. And he came over and was like, hey, dude, have you, have you heard about UAD? And I was like, not really? Yeah, I heard of him on the radio. I was passing nine lines to him, but didn't know that much, know that he had gone to UAD. So he invited me down to the shop at Miramar. And, you know, we, we did typical thing, EOD things um, <laughs> that I, I will uh, exercise some judgment here not go into them <laughs> but, um, that's a good plan but yeah there's there, there was alcohol involved that's all okay um and you know but i realized that this this is a really cool job you know, mm-hmm. it's they had a really tight-knit family atmosphere that i was looking for and um but at the same time you know went and actually did stuff year-round whether you're deployed stateside there's always something to do there's always potential for growth and learning in that job. Uh, a lot of jobs in the Marine Corps, you can you can rank out of uh, effective work. Um, you know, in the communications field, really, once you pick up sergeant, uh, you stop kind of doing your job. The job's mostly done by corporals and lance corporals. And uh, once you pick up sergeant, you're mostly writing a desk, occasionally, you know, running a team or something, but it's generally that. When you pick up rockers and move into staff and CEOs, you really only sit at a desk and write plans and things like that. And I was like, well, that sucks. Let me go try this EOD thing out. Um, so I started uh, started up the, uh, the process to get screened for EOD. I headed over to First Company uh, in the old dilapidated building it was in back then. Um, and uh, passed my screening. Uh, and then eventually headed off to EOD school. And I believe August 2007, 
Um, then I went to the schoolhouse. Uh, and uh, I guess I had a typical EOD school experience. Yeah. Uh, was with kind of a, uh, I don't know how to describe the class I was in, the first one. Um, it was like a, it was like a class full of delinquents, I guess, like the, the leftovers from every other class. I didn't know where to put them, so they put us all into, into 380, and we were wild. Um, the uh, the mascot, as far as I know to this day, for that class is still five strong uh, gum, or five gum, because only five members of the original class graduated with that class. Wow. Uh, I wasn't one of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was... I was one of the last to drop. I dropped in uh, in bombs in air mm-hmm. ordnance. Um, usually not a test that drops a lot of people, but you know, I got a couple of curveballs and uh, double tap, and they rolled me back to uh, I think it was eight ten s. That was a very different class. This was like going from alternative school to like the AP class in high school, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, a lot of good people in there. Uh, Still friends with many of them to this day. Uh, Ryan Mass was in that class. Liz Dunbar, uh, Tom McCray, mm-hmm. um, who I you know caught up with again at Walter Reed again. Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, they, they were yeah. all in that class, and uh, you know finished up there in my uh, my crab on in June two thousand eight, mm-hmm. and uh, headed off to Japan. All right. Well, uh, that. Um you had a very, uh, very good military career up to that point, for sure. Um, even though you were trying to navigate through what was going to work best for you, but you finally found EOD um, mm-hmm. through your good friend Dave Lyon. And then um, I thought it was a couple of things that were interesting. I was, I've been listening to you, Tim, and one of them is your perspective about Afghanistan. Then you know, because I, I don't. I don't always hear that or I haven't always heard about their culture necessarily and what good things they were doing for the citizens of their, their country. Um, and then the other thing that I um, found interesting was I didn't realize that you went through school with Brian Mast and also Tom McRae. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Only spent probably the last two months of school with them. Uh-huh. But, uh, uh, yeah, I rolled into there. Um, I was only very briefly in the class with Tom. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it was right around then is when Aiden was born. Okay, uh, gotcha. He, he wound up rolling out of the class when she was born. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure, who knows what Brian thought of me in class then because we were like polar opposites. He was the, the quiet guy that sat in the front and I was the class clown that sat in the back. Yeah. But, uh, um, it doesn't it's matter. Funny thing, yeah, it's <laughs> funny how things will come full circle in you know, a small community like ours. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, well, um, in 2011, um, your life was changed. And um, can you share just, you know, a little about the incident and injury that occurred that day? And, you know, I'll... I'll Ask some follow-on questions too, Tim, in regards to prognosis and all that. But we can, we'll just, we'll just wait for you to tell us about the injury and the incident of that day. Yeah, when I when I first woke up in Bethesda, uh, I honestly didn't know what the hell had happened. Um, 
I had, uh, last thing I remember was going to sleep on the night of February 2nd. We were, probably the last memory I have uh, when I still had legs was mm-hmm. standing around in our little our little kitchen that we had. Because we had just moved into basically a suite in the um, you know, provincial government center or whatever it was. Okay. You know, an actual hard building instead of the uh, you know, dirt hab that we had. Mm-hmm. We had a map on the wall and a little kitchen in the corner and all that good stuff. And we were standing around because we'd gotten some calls about whatever it is we were supposed to do the next day. And we were mapping about you know, doing our usual evening prep. Uh, then I went to bed. And as far as I was concerned, I was asleep and having some weird dreams. Mm. Um, you know, I had one one dream. It's still really the only thing that, that breaks through uh, the amnesia. Um, even though it comes through like a dream, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Was that, um, you know, I felt like I was on a C-17 in the way that you just know things in a dream. Um, and it felt like they were loading me into Professor X's wheelchair from the cartoon X-Men series that ran in the 90s. <laughs> like the yellow doorstop, door wedge looking wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And it felt like they were loading me up the side of the wall. I remember just being confused and where I was going on. Um you know, and I look up and, you know, I see Darth Vader shaking his head at me. Um, and he wasn't actually Darth Vader in the dream. It was uh, the kind of helmet you usually see on uh, Rotary Ring light crew. Uh, so I think it was, looking back, I think that was a mashup of multiple memories. One from Dustoff, one from maybe the flight overseas. that combined themselves in my, you know, drug-induced brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know what was going on. I just remember at some point the words "Welcome to Bethesda" kind of breaking through the uh, the fog. Wow! And you know, I woke up and I was in you know, in a hospital bed at what was then National Naval Medical Center, Bethesda. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, kind of knew instantly what those words meant. You know, there was you know, there's definitely a lot more preparation for me in this deployment than there had been in previous ones because I knew I was going into the teeth of it. Um, and we knew beforehand I was going into singing. I was going to get all the combat I ever wanted and then some. And uh, you know, so we knew, you know, things like this were always, you know, a real possibility. And at that point, um, Dave Lyon had already been injured, uh, I think, the previous April. Um, so I had already, I'd met with him, picked him up from the airport in San Diego before we even deployed. Uh, and it also met Jesse Cottle at some house parties that we had mm-hmm. uh, at our basically frat house that we lived in. Um, so we were already kind of had been exposed to the potential consequences of our job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they weren't just some far off things that you couldn't quantify or you know, real things that we had seen in people that we'd met. Uh, so once I heard those words, I was like, oh, crap, I know what this means. Um so I started trying to look around and you know notice, okay, my right arm's gone and look down at my legs. Okay, they're gone. One's longer, one's shorter, and you know, my hands all messed up. So I started trying to run like a post blast analysis on myself in bed, trying to figure out what the hell happened. And uh, uh, you know, it was assumed that maybe I was digging on something and I'd melt, you know, with my left leg since I was higher. I was like, maybe I knelt on it and the right leg is back, and that's why this happened, or whatever. Um, it took me a while to piece together you know, exactly what happened. Um, you know, we'd hear 
bits and pieces for different people. Obviously, while the rest of the company was still downrange, I wasn't going to hear much. Um, eventually, was able to uh, get into the incident report down at Indian Head, or the official version of what happened. You know, talk with Dan McCarty and and Dick Don, uh, who was my corpsman, about what had happened. But their their memories were spotty. Uh, uh, Dan had apparently been he'd been suffering from from headaches since uh, uh, Mark Zambo and got blown up. Our original team leader about what, three weeks before me or something like that. Uh, he uh, somewhat jokingly, somewhat seriously reminds me that his headaches went away the morning that I got blown up. He was so happy about it that I got blown up and they came back. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <to> tell you. <laughs> um, but uh, what finally sealed it was, you know, when I was able to get a copy of the helmet cam footage from Dan. Oh. And, uh, oh, you know, chilled the whole, uh, the whole blast. And, uh, you know, I was able to review that. What happened, what happened was we were responding to an IED call. Um, in the lot area, just kind of in the center of our AO, uh, was generally where the A team uh, of Taliban bombmakers uh, can be found. Uh, lots of victim-operated stuff, lots of uh, you know remote power sources and things like that. Uh, so I don't know what th- went through our minds when we heard a call and engineers found a device and the power force was co-located. And I don't know if that set off any alarms. Uh, but we were responding to it, and uh, Dan had gone up ahead, and he was approaching the primary, or that device that we found, and I stepped on what turned out to be the primary device. Uh, by this point, it was four months of deployment. We assumed that they had seen enough of our procedures and our avenues of approach that they figured out how to adapt to them. They did, and uh, I stepped on the device. Blew up, pretty much caused all my injuries instantaneously. Um, I think the only the only thing that happened later is I went from a below knee on the the left side to an, uh, a very high above me. Uh, it also injured my uh, one of my infantrymen who was providing security. He wound up uh, losing his arm at the shoulder. He's a, a shoulder dysartic, and then uh, Doc Don also took some frag to his forearm. Um, but was still able to patch me up, and uh, uh, that's where all that that good high-end EOD training that you can get really came into play, along with the, the sad reality that we were with probably the best infantry unit you could hope to have gotten blown up with, mm-hmm. um, because they had a lot of practice. Um, yeah. I think on their whole deployment, they had 150 wounded in action or something like that. Oh my goodness, um, Tim. Not all of them were blown up, but a lot of them were. It seemed like pretty much you know, almost every day or every few days, uh, somebody was getting evac'd uh, without some parts that they had come into Afghanistan with. Um, so as, as rough as that was, it meant that they knew exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. And something, within some like 20 minutes of me getting blown up, I had gone from uh, singing uh, all the way back to our fob onto a desktop bird and all the way to um, uh, to Camp Bastion in the Roll 3 hospital. Um, was, obviously, I found out later from you know reading hospital notes and stuff like that. Um, so I had lost 
And when I woke up, I was missing my, missing my right arm above the elbow. Both legs are gone above the knees. Um, right leg about two inches above the knee. The left leg about three inches below the, the hip. And my hand was made. And uh, I went through... Uh, you know, went through the, the initial acute phase of care, which is, doesn't even qualify as rehab yet. It's just trying to get you to not die. Right. And, uh, you know, as, as bad as things might sound, as, as I described them on here, I mean, there was, there was a lot of guys there that were a lot worse off than me. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to deal with fungus. There were, um, there were guys like, you know, John Hayes and, and Tom McCray. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, at very different timelines, Jason Ross all had, you know, some some really major issues that I didn't have to contend with, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it came to fungus. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I I remember um, I remember meeting your mom actually in in the hospital hallway um, when when Julie and I came to see you in 2011, and uh, um. At that time, we weren't able to communicate with you. Um, it was still very, very touch and go, um, as many cases are when when you get life flighted back to the United States and you know medevaced um, back to the United States. But I I remember meeting you when you were able to be awake and um, you know chat and everything. And I know that. There were months and and actually years of rehabilitation, Tim, um, to get you mm-hmm. to where you are now. And um, can you can you talk to me about just what what gave you the the determination and drive to just fight for your life and and to get to this point? I think at the most basic level, you know, you really don't have a choice. Um, I tried to imagine what I would be like if I had, you know, prior to my injury, what I would be like when I got blown up. And, you know, I had ideas in my mind that I'd be like Tom Cruise from Born on the Fourth of July or you know, Gary Sinise as early Lieutenant Dan when he's angry and, and, and stuff like that. I was definitely angry. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, after so many, you know, days, months, weeks of, uh, sitting in bed, it's, uh, it really just kind of came from within. You know, I didn't want to stay in bed anymore. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get out of that damn bed. It sucked. Um, you know, having to get rolled every, every two hours, not being able to do much of anything without getting, uh, exhausted. Um, you know, one of my favorite videos to watch while I was still inpatient, uh, which my total inpatient stay lasted three months. Uh, one of my favorite videos to watch was, this basically recruiting video that BAMC had sent up. Well, amputees doing cool amputee stuff. They're like using the boogie board machine and hiking and running and doing all this stuff. Granted, all the amputees in the video were single BKs. Those things aren't particularly difficult for them. Um, you know, that's it just motivated me. It's like, I want to do that. Like, I want to do something. I'm get out of this damn bed and eventually I'm going to you know, get on with life. Um, I don't remember any particular aha moment. You know, just I wanted to get out of this bed. I relished every moment out of it. You know, even the even the first fifteen minute long uh, physical therapy sessions we'd have still on the board, or basically, you know, try and sit up straight or like, okay, let's just flex your arm. Can you do that? All right, good job. And uh, kind of started to build on itself as I got 
into the outpatient uh, phase of rehab where I was not actively in the ward anymore. I was living in a dorm um, uh, near, you know, on the hospital grounds. And my job basically just became going to the gym, which is somewhat ironic because I was a band dork and a nerd in high school and play sports and never really cared much for physical activity and give two shits about PT when I was in the Marine Corps. I always hated it. But then I got to the hospital and you know, suddenly I, I loved it, you know, probably because I had tasted the other side. You know, I felt what it was like to not be able to do anything at all. And it was miserable. Right. Um, so, you know, I ate up every second of it. You know, I spend four to five hours every day in the, in the PT gym, working with my physical therapist and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, push as much as I could. Uh, you know, it helped that the physical therapists were pretty much all cute young women. So <laughs> she had something to look forward to. Uh, something to help get you out of bed at five in the morning when you're like, oh, I don't want to do this today. And yeah, I get to see Carrie, so there's that. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, sometimes you got to grasp for whatever you can in those moments. You know, if it's you know, uh, you know, a, a teenage style crush on your physical therapist, whatever, man, get up and go do it. Yep, that's and, right. Uh, um, yeah, I'll do that. You know, I always try to keep my eyes to the future. Um, you know, there's there's no point in looking back. I could, you know, lay in bed all I want, wonder why this happened to me. And, you know, what if I could change the past and blah, blah, blah. And there were times that I did that, but I never led anywhere because I can't go back. You know, there is no what if this did happen to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am here now. And, you know, it's now my decision where it goes from here. Um, and uh, there always, I'd set goals for myself. You know, there was some event I wanted to do or activity I wanted to do or, or something like that. And I would just, it usually be, you know, three to six months out, sometimes a year out or something. And, um, you know, just stay razor focused on that. And, uh, you know, it got hard, especially with, with the, the number of readmits I had uh, for different surgeries and procedures. Uh, I think it was a total of 21 times. I went back in for various procedures. Uh, not all of them were major, some of them were minor. Um, but there's two in particular. Um, and there was a major hand surgery, uh, a major, well, three major surgeries all at the same time. I had a, a revision to my uh, lower legs. Um, I had a hand surgery and a colostomy reversal. And that's something all the way back to phase zero. Um, you know, I went from being able to walk around the, the PT gym and, and work out for three hours a day before to the next day I could barely move. And uh, uh, here we go. We're going to start this process all over again. Okay, we can do this. You know, right. I did this before. Uh, you know, it's, it's April 2011 all over again. And uh, you know, I'll do that. And uh, a hand surgery later sent me back. Another hour. Okay, cool. We're now you know, back to not being able to use his hand for a few months and you know, having to relearn things all over again. And you know, mom is showering me, mm-hmm. and you know I'm fighting with my own mom in the shower um, you know, about you know shower head placement. It sounds so absurd. You know, vocalizing it, say like here's you know my naked ass fighting with my mother in the shower mm-hmm. about how she's holding the shower head, and um, you know just how absurd that is but uh, uh, it was always you know the, 
the will to look forward to something to set my my sights on a, a particular goal. You know, to put it in trendy business school terms, I had smart objectives. You know, I had they were specific, they were measurable, they were attainable, they were time bound, uh, and they were relevant. All those things, and um, and I just never let up focus on them at a point where everyone thought I was an asshole. They're generally right. Um, but you know, I'd come in there and I put my headphones on and that's for that time. That's what I was there to do. My job is to, to get myself better and to get myself where I wanted to be, you know, not to chit chat with celebrities, hang out with LeBron James or whoever wants to come visit, you know, or just work yeah, all the time or whatever it is I wanted to do. Um, Well, definitely your determination has paid off, Tim. Um, and I remember coming down to the mat and, and, seeing you guys all doing your PT and you were all super focused, some more than others for sure, just as what you're <laughs> saying. But um, I I remember you wearing the headphones, I do. And I remember you just, you know, uh, doing sit-ups and working with a different um, medicine balls and all kinds of different things, uh, just very determined and focused mm-hmm. that the injuries that you had sustained were not going to define you for the rest of your life. They just weren't going to do it. And um, a lot of admiration there, Tim, um, from me, for sure. And as somebody who witnessed a lot throughout those times, and and 2011 was an especially difficult year for for the Mm -hmm. EOD community. And um, we're just glad you're here. (laughs) Very glad you're here. Yep. I came to find out that, you know, there's the things you want in life aren't going to change. you know, the individual things might change, but the fact that there are things that you want in life uh, isn't going to change. And uh, it, it, for me, it wasn't ever about you know over necessarily overcoming. I, mean, I may have used that terminology like earlier on uh, in therapy. You know, while we're still trying to to find our identity uh, as a widow warrior, as a, a disabled uh, human, things like that. But it's that there were still things I wanted to do uh, and I was going to do them. And the legs were just a set of constraints or the amputations were a set of constraints that, you know, that I now had to deal with. Um, there was still a path to get to whatever it was I wanted to do. I just had to find it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's what I spent a lot of my time doing. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to Maria for a couple of questions here. So, Tim, during your time at Bethesda, you became involved with several organizations to include Ride to Recovery. What was that experience like? Uh, in a phrase, game changing. Um, you know, there was, there was always the uh, there was a pair of rec therapists that always wander around, uh, Harvey Naranjo and Kira. I work here as last name. Sorry, Kira, if you're listening. <laughs> um, they would always wander around trying to get people, you know, involved in adaptive sports. Now, Kira was always all about hockey. She'd moved down from New York. She, you know, had lived in the Northeast for a long time. She was all about hockey. South Texas, I care about hockey. And San Antonio was a hockey team. Cool, I care. I want to do hockey. And um, uh, but hand cycling was one of the. Uh, the sports uh, that was really big among uh, the guys in rehab. And somehow I had known about a bike ride from Houston to Austin. 
Uh, it's called the MS-150. It's one of the uh, benefits of the Multiple Sclerosis Foundation, and it's one of the series of rides, two-day rides they have all around the country. I was like, well, I want to do that. Um, help that uh, my platoon commander's wife, uh, Jason Perry, was my platoon commander. His wife had multiple sclerosis. So that just gave us a little more purpose. So I you know, linked up with him and Dave Lyon, and we were, we were all supposed to go do that ride together. Eventually, it just turned out being me uh, doing it with um, uh, Roberts, uh, another EOD tech. Yeah, Scott. Was it Scott? Yeah, Scott Roberts. Yeah. Scott Roberts. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, he was down in San Antonio rehabbing. Uh, linked up with him, said, hey, we're going to go do this ride. And, you know, two months after I had started hand cycling, I did uh, 77 miles the first day and 60-something the second day. Wow. Was was hooked right away. I was like, whatever this is, I love it. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, you know, cycling is a never-ending, it's a pain cave. We have a lot of sayings in cycling. Um, one of them is that cycling never gets easier, you just get faster. <laughs> and uh, part of what I liked about it, there was, there was suffering and struggling involved in cycling. And it, it gave me a chance to you know, put the, the anger and the, the hurt and the the listlessness down through those wheels and just burn them into the, into the pavement for miles upon miles. And there's some really good views while you're at it too. Um, depending on where you are, uh, not so many good views around Houston, but as you get toward the hill country and other parts around the country, I, I'd come to ride in. And there's, there's lots of views that just help you enjoy where you are uh, in space and in life and ride to recovery you know, really helped uh, get me there, uh, particularly an employee named Ray Clark, um, who would actually grow to basically be my best friend um, while I was rehabbing. He's a scrawny, cantankerous old mountain bike mechanic. Um, <laughs> if anybody knows cycling, they know exactly what I'm talking about because that copies of this man exist all around the country. Um, but uh, he... He had the skills, very high level of skill to be able to adapt a, a hand cycle or an upright cycle, any type of cycle, um, to whatever um, whatever the rider needed. And so he was a perfect fit at Bethesda. And uh, he helped figure out ways to get me cranking on both the, the right side with the prosthetic, the left side with a partial hand prosthetic, figuring out shifting and braking when you know, I have basically, you know, no, no operable advantages at that point uh, because the thumb, thumb works, but by then you can't just have the thumb do everything. And, um, you know, but beyond that, he just, you know, was a, he was a good guy and a good friend that made me want to ride, but he didn't, um, he didn't accept bullshit. You know, a lot of people, myself included, while we're rehabbing, we'll, we'll lie to ourselves about why we didn't do something. You know, to protect our self-image, and uh, like, oh, well, I could come, but but fill in the blank excuses, and you would just kind of look at you and be like, I don't care, either come or don't. Um, and but if you're there, you know, you're supportive. It was funny. You'd laugh and joke, and you know, he wasn't a veteran, but he, he held his own real well with veterans. Um, and nobody was going to get one over on him as a smartass. And uh, you know, I fell in love with the program. 
you know, at, at one point later in my rehab, I got to where I was riding over a hundred miles a week. Um, in addition to the four or five hours I'd spend in, in the rehab gym, uh, I just loved everything about cycling. You know, I'd go do probably four, three to four of their, um, their major week long challenges per year. They usually run seven. And, uh, wow. the way it works is that they'll take 200 veterans, uh, of all different you know, abilities. Uh, usually there'd be, you know, six to eight hand cyclists and the other 190 something would be, um, upright riders, uh, or recumbents. And, uh, they put us on bikes and we spend, you know, six days riding about 400 something miles. Um, you know, they had rides from San Antonio to Fort Worth that later shifted to Houston to Fort Worth. Um, another ride went from Palo Alto, California to LA. Um, lots of, lots of good hard rides. Um, but what really made it stick was the, the camaraderie you get in this group. You know, a group of 200 people, uh, you know, all suffering together. We're all on the bike. We all hate everything. It's hot. <laughs> or cold and raining because there's always at least one day on every ride where it was like 35 degrees and raining. And we go out and rain like, rain, uh, ride in the rain anyway like a bunch of idiots. Um, you know, we're going to be all hardcore and ride in this rain. And then about 10 miles into it, we're like, this was dumb. Can we get off this bike now? Um, but, uh, you know, everyone, we all suffered and struggled and, and sweated uh, and did all that stuff together. And it was intoxicating. Um, so I kept doing it. Uh, met some great people through there. Uh, met my now girlfriend through there. Um, she's not here right now, though. I should probably be chiming in saying she didn't like me back then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but it, it and just totally, you know, changed my life. So, yeah. But I didn't just stick with ride, with doing it with ride recovery. I would go out and do, um, you know, marathon races with Achilles Freedom Team. I did probably 15 of those uh, since I've been injured. And uh, you know, I, I dabbled in some other hand cycle racing. Uh, the actual paracycling organized hand cycle racing world. I, I jumped into that for a little bit. Um, came to find out that really wasn't for me. Um, there's a um, nasty little reality in, in Paris sport about uh, classifications. And some sports have a, a wide range of classifications for different injuries uh, or different disabilities uh, for people able to compete equitably. And cycling, there's not that many. In hand cycling, you're only five. And if you're an amputee, you're automatically H5, uh, whether you have a kneeler or not, when you got classified at a race. I didn't even have a kneeler, which is the type of hand cycle that you, if you had knees, you would kneel in. Uh, got classified into age five, and then because I could, because I was an amputee, and then told I couldn't race because I didn't have a kneeler. Um, so you know, I've raced a while anyway, but it really wasn't going anywhere for me racing. You know, the I'd usually still be on the course three laps from finishing when the race gets called because the top three riders already finished, as well as you know most people behind them. Um, so I came to, that kind of forced me to, to really think about what exactly it was about cycling that, uh, that, <clears throat> that actually drew me to it. 
And, you know, it wasn't the racing that drew me to it. You know, it's fun to be able to challenge yourself and give yourself a metric that you can use to uh, to compare yourself and your, your progress. <clears throat> but that's not why I rode. You know, I preferred the long-distance slogs, the grand tours and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to focus on those rides. So, you know, I got to rides like Ride the Rocky. Uh, my favorite ride. Uh, there wasn't a rider recovery ride that's a, uh, kind of a general grand tour sponsored by the Denver Post every year. And you spend six days riding around the Rocky Mountains. And when I say riding around the Rocky Mountains, you're riding up the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> it's, it's not an easy, not an easy course. Basically, every day you're crossing some 10,000 plus foot uh, mountain pass. And, uh, as miserable as that is, you know, trucking along, going a whole three miles an hour for eight hours at a time, going up this mountain, the views at the top made it all worth it. Oh, there's, there's nothing like the views at the top of the mountain pass, and it makes it even better when you had to earn every bit of it. You didn't just drive your car up there and hop out, take a few photos, and get back in and move on. Like, no, you, you spend a long time looking at those views, uh, you know, when you're going three miles an hour. And then you get to go about 60 miles an hour coming down. It was really the best part. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> tuck and go. And, uh, um, you know, just that the sense of freedom, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of work, um, you know, that, that good old U.S. Marine Corps instilled addiction to suffering, um, you know, would kick in. And I just loved every minute of it. Well, it definitely sounds like it changed your life for the better. Oh, without question. Yeah. Uh, you know, I still uh, I still ride, not as much as usual, obviously. Uh, things have changed a little bit. I you know, moved to Houston, and I'll touch back on that later. But uh, uh, I still ride, and you know that's part of the reason I moved, uh, I'm moving to a place like Gunnison, Colorado, so I can be back in a bike mecca and just ride. That's great. Not to worry about anything else. So, once you discharged from Walter Reed, you attended Georgetown University. What was your major, and when did you graduate? My majors, I had two. I picked up a double major when I transferred into Georgetown. Uh, I majored in management and marketing, but both within the business school. Um, I picked those because of a conversation I had with Ken Fall. Uh, I decided during my rehab that. If I didn't stay in the Marine Corps on active duty, I wanted to work in the nonprofit field because of the impact of people like Ken and Sherry and Janine from Semper Fi Fund and uh, the Bunce twins with Wounded Warrior Project. Uh, you know, that's they really left a mark on me um, with how much y'all had given me, how much y'all really contributed to uh, the opportunities that I had uh, that this whole generation had. Uh, during rehab. So I'd ask Ken, you know, hey, if I want to work at a nonprofit, what should I major in? You know, because they don't just happen on their own. They're, they're businesses. You need to make business-like decisions and, and be able to do things like that. So he said, go major in business, you know, management or, or whatever. Uh, so I started off as management major, picked up marketing. Um, they came to realize management is kind of like the general studies of business. Um, it was cool, but you don't really learn anything. <laughs> that particularly useful other than how to not get sued 
And uh, I picked up marketing at Georgetown and uh, followed that all the way through until I graduated uh, last year in 2020. Um, and I say graduated loosely because it was 2020. You didn't really graduate. You just kind of finished. <laughs> and that was it. It was, it was kind of a letdown. You know, there's no buildup and big release of tension and, you know, at a party and saying, here, I'm done with college. I can move back on to being adult again. I'm done with this crap. No, it was just, you're done. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we were invited to come back this year or there was talk that they would hold a graduation ceremony this year instead of the 2020 grads. We come back and walk the state. Like, am I going to fly all the way across the country just to walk on a stage? Mm. Like, it's, you know, you're a year too late at that point. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I graduated from there. Uh, and Georgetown, definitely, you have to earn the fancy name at Georgetown. Uh, it's work. Thinking idle hands of the devil's play things. They're going to keep you as busy as possible or them, you know, making sure they can uphold their, um, their rec- uh, reputation. It was a high end school. They definitely do work your butt off at Georgetown. Um, but I did, and I managed to graduate cum laude with the, uh, 3.757 GPA. Um, I think it was like two hundredths of a point from Magna Cum Laude. Wow, Tim. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, now, you did a marketing internship with Move United. Tell us about that organization and how the intern opportunity helped you. So, I'm still doing uh, the internship with Move United. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I started on in September of 2020. You know, normally it's a, a three-month term, and basically tell them, "Hey, I want to stay on um, because you know I, I want to promote adaptive sports because of the impact they had on me. I want to do whatever I can to make sure that other people um, have that opportunity." Um, and with Move United too, uh, uh, I set out some some parameters for myself with who I wanted to work for. Uh, while I love veteran service organizations and everything they did for me, I didn't want to work for one because I saw a big disparity and still see a big disparity in, in the amount of support that disabled veterans get as opposed to disabled civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we argue all day long about what's deserved, you know, this and that. The fact is that when you're disabled, the world sucks all still the same. It doesn't matter how you wind up in a chair, you're in a chair. And I wanted to specifically work with a group that also worked with disabled civilians um, because they don't have a lot of stuff. They don't have people lining up to build them houses, buy them cars. Um, you know, if they want to do a sport, they basically have to choose one because they may only get one grant for part of the cost of a particular piece of equipment. And these pieces of equipment you know, start at $5,000 and go up from there. Um, you know, my hand bikes and the rugby chair I'm, I'm trying to order are each about $10,000 um, with all the, the fittings. So, um, so I went to move, work with uh, Move United, who was formerly known as two different groups, uh, Disabled Sports USA and Adaptive Sports USA. Um, they had merged together uh, just before I uh, applied to work with them. But the Disabled Sports USA side I'd had experience with um, going to Ski Spectacular in 2011, my first adaptive sports trip of any kind, and being real involved with 
some of their member organizations, particularly in Colorado, out in uh, out in Utah. I've worked with another one of their members. Uh, I believe UD Warrior Foundation has has used some of their members for for various trips. Uh, when you do ski trips or whatever in Colorado. Um, Recreation Outdoor Education Center is one of their members. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, so I went. I went to work in Nevada so I could learn more about you know the inner workings of the adaptive sports nonprofit world and and give me some better tools to be able to succeed. And uh, you know, so far I love what I'm doing. I'm promoting adaptive sports. Uh, you know, it's and it's kind of you know in some ways it's kind of good being an intern. Like, you, know, you know, you don't get all the fanfare like, oh, you're an intern. Okay. Well, they give you a little more flexibility when you want to just get a hair up your ass and go travel to do a different sport or whatever. You get a little more flexibility with that. Um, you know, I don't have as many um, major responsibilities that are that are time bound as a you know some of our uh, the salary employees have. It gives me a little flexibility, um, but it's helped build my skills as a photographer too. Photography uh, is kind of hobby number two after cycling, and uh, you know now I could say I'm a semi-pro photographer and that I shoot uh, as part of my job description for Movie United. Um, you know, I, I recently shot a, a major multi-sport uh, summer event uh, called Junior Nationals, uh, Movie United Junior Nationals out in Denver. Um, shot about 8,000 photos for that. Um, kept about 800 of them. And uh, I've have traveled to do different events with them. Uh, like this coming Saturday, we'll be going to Colorado again for their major winter event, and uh, I'll be shooting there. And that's really helped build my skills as a photographer, you know, beyond just the, the hobby photographer that I was. And a lot of people say, man, you know, you take great photos, you're a good photographer. But, you know, it's one thing when you're doing it as a hobby, you know, just kind of taking pictures of whatever and processing them whenever you get around to it being a semi-pro where you need specific images of specific things um, that you can use in a marketing setting and a program setting and they need them all quickly. So it definitely put a different spin on the, on the job, but I like the, the challenge of it. I like the growth I'm getting out of my skills as a photographer, um, particularly shooting the type of things I, I didn't really shoot because they're frankly hard. Sports photography is real difficult. It's even more difficult when you have a thumb to work with. So, you know, I can't, you know, I have two hands to manipulate both the, the camera settings and the, the lens zoom and focus and stuff like that. So I got to kind of, you know, be able to read the scene well enough to preset what it is I, I think I want and then try and get that and quickly move to something else. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying the challenges that it's, it's presenting me and, I'm enjoying getting to feel like I'm, you know, doing some productive, uh, promote something that's really been a life changer for me. That's fantastic, Tim. Um, you are a great photographer. I've seen some of your work, so it's really exciting to hear that you are progressing mm-hmm. in that way and and doing events and um, all of the editing that goes along with it and selection yeah. process. That's pretty cool. <laughs> hours and hours of editing. I know. Yeah. Sometimes like weeks of editing after a major event, like junior nationals. Um, you know, I imagine after I'm done with Eastbeck, I'll have probably a solid two weeks of just staring at photos all day. Yeah. Um, 
to I try and get burned through them. Uh, but the results are it, and you get the shot, you know. And I have many of the shot. That's you, know, awesome. you don't just get one or two on this thing, you get multiples. And the kind of photo that you can just put on your screen there, out the one that stops someone in their track, you know, when they're reading a pamphlet or a magazine, it's like, damn, that's a good shot. Yeah, that's um, you know, it's, There's a sense of accomplishment and creation, and you know, it, it uh, appeals to the artistic side also. Yeah, fantastic. I love it. It's awesome. Um, well, Tim, I know that you recently moved back to Houston and, um, tell me how that transition has been for you. It's been honestly pretty tough. It's, you know, the, on the upside, I'm near family. Mm-hmm. That's cool. My, uh, you know, pretty much my whole immediate family, and some of my, uh, cousins live around Houston. Um, sister's currently in college station, which isn't far from Houston. Uh, if you're not familiar with the geography, it's from where we live, uh, just west of downtown Houston. It's you know probably an hour and a half drive for us, so not that far. Okay. Mm-hmm. But even then, they're about to move into Houston, so um, you know we're we're gonna have a whole family right in, in Metro Greater Metro Houston. So the you know that's an upside. You see, spend more time with family and stuff like that, but. But I had to trade in all the, the friends and the structure and the, the contacts and everything I made during the 10 years I lived outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And there's honestly something I don't know if I really was prepared for was, you know, the fact that I don't really feel like I'm from Houston anymore. Um, you know, even though, or even Texas in general, um, you know, they're part of the what comes along with the, the retrograde amnesia is that I feel totally severed from the Tim uh, that was a Marine, that was an EOD tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, in a lot of ways, it feels like that Tim died on February 2nd, and a different Tim was born on February whatever, 8th mm-hmm. or 10th, whenever I woke up. And you know, so I feel as much like a Maryland native as I do a Houston native. So, um, and I haven't been, lived in Houston for almost two decades when I came back. So kind of alien being back in my own hometown. Um, but you know, I didn't have my, my cycling group. I did. I had my bike, uh, but Houston itself isn't as good of a cycling city as DC is. Um, granted most cities aren't as good cycling cities as DC is. That whole area is, is a really good area to be a cyclist. Um, Great scenery, varying terrain, dozens of trails all around the city. Um, I'll take you anywhere you want to go that you can really get your your advanced rides on. And, and a group that I can go do advanced rides with, a guy like Ray. Um, it really hurt to leave Ray. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, not just because of his free bike mechanistry, but I could always drop my bike off with him whenever I want. He could work on it, be ready for me whenever we rode again. But I just miss Ray. Mm-hmm. You know, I miss all of our, you know, our conversations on the bike and stuff like that. Um, uh, we tried to, to take up cycling a bit here in Houston, but you know, while we're near a major trail on Buffalo Bayou, um, there's a few trails here, but you know they're flat. And they're ugly. They're all they run along the the rivers, the bayous in Houston, which are basically just big drainage ditches. 
Uh, Houston is not a city you will ever hear accused of being attractive. Uh-huh. And, um, um, yeah. so I was, you know, I was getting out and riding, but you know, without that group, you don't have that peer pressure to actually show up. It's too easy to talk yourself out of it. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't enjoying it as much as I, as I hoped for, you know, I definitely don't feel the same riding around Houston. I did around DC or I do a Colorado or whatever. Um, but during the process of moving here and, and working with Move United, we'd come across some of the adaptive sports groups in Houston. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found this uh, Houston Adaptive Sports Club and um, that operates out of the, the West Gray uh, Community Rec Center, um, which is convenient, which is only like a mile and a half from me. And uh, you know, I decided one day you know, I was... I was going to stop in to work. Hey, I want to go check these guys out. We want to bring a lot of members. You know, I want to go, I want to go learn some more about these people. So I'm going to go stop by. I found out they were doing wheelchair rugby. That was one of their, their big offerings. Uh, it was basically that lacrosse and basketball are their three of their biggest offerings. Like, well, I'm not really interested in wheelchair basketball or lacrosse. So rugby sounds fun though. And you just reel around and smash into each other. That's awesome. So I went there and, <laughs> You know, went for a practice and, uh, you know, loved it right away. It, it, I'll say it hasn't taken the place of cycling. I still, you know, cycling is still gives me a feeling unlike anything else. But, you know, rugby gives me, gave me a, a group of friends that gave me camaraderie, gave me, um, you know, someone hold me accountable. I can't just keep practicing and get away with it. So, um, so I got to show up there. In fact, tonight we have practice. And I'm looking forward to it. Um, but uh, I started doing that, I think it's September. And, you know, it's great workouts. You know, it's it's definitely different from cycling. You know, it's a team sport. It's not just individual crushing the pavement. you gotta, you got to understand the game and how your teammates are moving and communicate, things like that. And what um, um, gets me out there, you know, it's keeping me active. And, you know, I'm really liking it. I have no clue what I'm going to do when I move to rural Colorado and don't have access to a rugby team. Um, I guess, you know, maybe I'll have to snowbird in Houston a little bit during the season. But, um, um, but that's been, that's been really helpful to, to help me feel more at home here in Houston. And, um, and as, as much as I like working with Move United, working from home isn't the greatest. Um, you know, when you spend a whole week basically never leaving your apartment, you're like, well, this kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to be out doing something. I'm too fidgety to be stuck in an apartment all day. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that helps that helps cure that a little bit. And, and as the events are, are picking back up, you know, as we move forward in this big COVID quagmire we have going on, you know, that gives me stuff to look forward to also. You know, going and doing events and things like that. Um, but we're moving right along here in Houston. And, you know, I keep in mind it's, it's temporary. You know, we're here until Jamie can finish her undergraduate degree. And um, then we're moving to Colorado. Um, and I'm going to live in great paradise. Mm-hmm. Well, that is very exciting. Um, I wanted to ask, do you have any organizations that you would specifically like to talk about or share with the audience um, that have been the most helpful for you? Yeah, it's been a lot. <laughs> so, you can just name a few, Tim. You yeah, know I mean, I mean? 
I'll, I'll try and I'll, I'll name a few, but really try and drill into a couple. Um, there's big ones like Simplify Flown that have been, you know, nothing but helpful for me throughout my time rehabbing, of course, the foundation. Um, and um, well, there's a couple I really want to touch on that maybe don't get a whole lot of love or a whole lot of attention. Uh, one was four wheel to heel. And uh, I guess you, we can debate what helpful means in the context of a foreigner that's covered in dents. But, um, uh, you know, they're a group that takes uh, wounded warriors and they go camping, four-wheeling. When I say four-wheeling, like we're talking full-size Jeeps on 40s. Wow. Um, you know, my forerunner is on 34s and it's, you know, one of the less capable vehicles out there. Um, but, um, you know, we go out, we'd go out in the woods on the border of West Virginia and Virginia and bounce around on these big granite boulders, do all kinds of fun stuff and they come back sit by the fire and talk shit to each other. <laughs> typical, <laughs> typical things veterans wants to do. And it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, really just kind of downshifting while still being active. Uh, like you're active, but you're not chasing anything. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's real relaxed. Um, and then the other one I want to point out is uh, the Adaptive Sports Center in Crested Butte. Um, and I've had tons of interaction with this group. Um, since I first met them in 2012, uh, I've done two week long ski trips with them, week long summer trip. Uh, they're the ones that brought me out to do ride the Rockies five times. Nice. Um, I've gone out there. I go out there pretty much every summer, even if it's only for a couple weeks at a time, uh, to the Gunnison River Valley and Crested Butte where they are. And, uh, you know, I've helped them raise money on, on this big bike ride they have called Bridges of the Butte. And, uh, you know, they're a major reason why I'm moving to Gunnison. Well, they are the reason I'm moving into Gunnison. Nice. Um, is, you know, because I'd hopefully like to work for them eventually and, um, you know, continue to the path of giving back, but at a more direct level, direct ground level operations. And, uh, you know, I just got a chance to help them fundraise in Las Vegas uh, back in November, earlier in November. And, uh, it's a great group of people that love nothing else than to get disabled people outdoors and, you know, living a fulfilled life and discovering what they can do and just how magical the mountains of Colorado are. Um, So I definitely want to throw a shout out to them and also their, their sister organizations like them. We have 200 members of Move United that are like the Adaptive Sports Center. So even if, you know, somebody listening to this can't necessarily get to Colorado. They might have something near them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our members that does something. So, you know, always Google us, check us out, um, check out these groups, and uh, you know, go join up. Go find something. Very cool. Um, thanks for sharing that, Tim. And I'll make sure that the list is included. Um, in the podcast write up when we release it and everything. So folks can reach out to those organizations that have been so helpful to you. Um, and yeah, let me know if you need URLs or anything like that. Okay. I appreciate it. I will do that. Um, well, as we, we wrap up the interview here, I, I have to ask a couple of questions like, um, how are your mom and dad? How are your parents doing? They're doing all right. I think uh, mom is tickled pink that all of her children are back within Metro Houston. Oh, for a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
and we just went and spent Thanksgiving up in Arkansas, uh, up near Hot Springs. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like being back on the East Coast. It's like it's like being back in the Appalachians again. And uh, uh, they're they're both retired. As much as mom is capable of being retired, I get my <laughs> I get my pitch busybodyness directly from her. And uh, um, you know, but they're enjoying life. You know writing about COVID like many people are. Yeah. Uh, especially mm-hmm. living in a place like Houston that pretends it doesn't exist. Um, but uh, uh, they're doing they're doing real well. Good. I'm glad. Well, your mom, um, I had a chance to have dinner with your mom and dad. Probably, um, shoot, it's probably been a year and a half ago um, when mm-hmm. I was in Houston. But um it was very great to see them, Tim. But, you know, your mom is a lifelong learner. I mean, she is always mm-hmm. curious and uh, mm-hmm. just loves to dig into anything that she can learn. And I love that about her. <laughs> oh, yeah. She is. She's not a teacher because she had no options. She's a teacher because she is a teacher. Yeah, she oh. absolutely <laughs> is. So. Yeah. And I love that. And your dad is just as sweet as he can be. So <laughs> it was wonderful to see both of them. Um, well, I also have... Um, Another question, a follow-on question. I know you mentioned that you met your girlfriend Jamie when you were got you were, um, you know, doing ride to recovery. However, you weren't friends at that point. So, what changed between then and you guys being together now? <laughs> well, I don't know what changed on her end, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had a, a rather uh, funny interaction one that really kicked everything off. Um, you know, I had, I had known of her, you know, we knew of each other in passing and ride recovery. She usually rode with different group um, on our rides. So we didn't get to know each other that much. And I thought she was married at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at some point, maybe a year before we got together, I found out Jamie was not married. Anymore. <laughs> And I was like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, maybe next time we're here, I'll say hey or whatever. And uh, didn't have any direct plans. It wasn't like I found out and then called her right after, like, hey, what are you doing? Um, but she uh, she was running uh, the Ride Recovery Project Hero uh, chapter out of San Diego, doing a lot of stuff at Balboa uh, Naval Medical Center, San Diego. And during the course of her work, she had come across a corpsman who had apparently put me on some sort of aircraft at some point in my evacuation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, she, she had done a ride with this guy and you know, took a selfie with him and sent it and said, hey, I met this guy. He says he knows you. you know, and I was like, yeah, whatever he says, it's lies. Mm-hmm. Good. It's, if it's good things, it's definitely lies. <laughs> and uh, you know, they had just finished a bike ride. So you know, she's in her spandex bike shorts and apparently it was a warm day so she had taken off the, her jersey she had her sports bra on underneath the, the bed <laughs> and me at that point um really wasn't having a whole lot of you know success in the, in the, the dating department at that point uh-huh. so i just kind of went for broke i was like whatever i'm just gonna say something off the wall either it works or she gets mad at me and doesn't talk to me again um Apparently, sometime around when they took the the photo, it had cooled off a little bit, and she was poking out through a sports bra a little bit. So I was like, "Oh, hey, nice nipple!" <laughs> Just straight up said that. 
And apparently it was all downhill from there. <laughs> apparently Knives Nipples is a highly underrated pickup line. And um, so we, you know, we kept chatting. You know, she's a, she's a Marine veteran herself, mm-hmm. also did about 11 years in the Marine Corps. Right. So, you know, Knives Nipples might sound crass to some people. It's downright tame by our standards. And uh, um, you know, so we kept chatting and chatting a little bit. You know, eventually we exchanged numbers, and uh, she threatened me with because uh, I don't know who she'd been dealing with on the dating side on her end. But uh-huh. she told me like when she gave when she gave me your number, don't you send me any dick pics because I'm on you know, just the tip of the spear. I'll I'll send them up there. So the the first message I sent her was a picture of Richard Nixon. Oh. Um, <laughs> that is funny. You didn't get that joke for about six months. It took her a while. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> so uh, she was like, "Why is he sending me a picture of Richard Nixon?" Uh, but uh, you know, not long after that, she decided she was going to drive all the way across the country, and you know, our first date was four wheeling. Wow. Um, you know, she's a a country girl from Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Uh, grew up south of Pittsburgh, way in the, the corner of Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. You know, so you know, camping and playing around in the mud are kind of her cup of tea, right? Uh, which fits. And uh, and she was a truck driver in the Marine Corps, so driving ridiculous lengths on end, or you know, no sweat off her back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she came over. Our first date was uh, was four wheeling. We went camping, had a great time. Went back to Arizona. Came back the following summer. Or not the following that that summer she came back, and our second date was nineteen thousand miles in a minivan over three months. Wow! Um, me, her, her big ass dog, I weighed about one hundred ten pounds at the time. She had a, a Cane Corso Italian Mastiff, and me with my standard Schnauzer, um, <laughs> who thinks he's one hundred ten pounds, uh-huh. and. Three months worth of camping, four bikes. I had my mountain bike, my mountain hand cycle, my road hand cycle, her two bikes on the back. Uh, we piled in the van and basically recreated my previous summer's trip where I just got in a van, found things on a map, and drove to Wow. Um, that whole three months, that's all we did that summer. I was driving to random places, tough friends in Crested Butte and Bend, Oregon. Went all the way up to Washington. I think we went through probably 25 to 28 states that summer. Amazing. Um, and we didn't murder each other. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like everything else was trivial. Right. Um, if we can get through three months in a van together and not murder each other, there's something there. Yeah. And everything else, you know, will either come into place or we'll find a way around it. Right. And, you know, that was almost five years ago. Wow. Um, I think March will be five years. I so, love it, Tim. Um, yeah, Such a and sweet she, story. <laughs> sweet story that began with nipples. Right. We went on to a three-month road trip, and here we are five years later. Wow. Um, I she, love it. She puts up with me. I put up with her. Uh-huh. Um, you know, she hauls all my crap around and all these wild, stupid ideas they come up with. And, uh, you know, she's, she's totally okay with Picking me up and moving me in between chairs and mm-hmm. wiping my butt when it needs to wipe sometimes. Yeah. Um, and all the things that, you know, are really hard to find. You, know, you can talk about love languages, head over heels and all this other bullshit, but you find someone who's who can wipe your ass and not think twice about it, 
you keep them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, Tim, I, you know, your, your story is really inspirational and I, and I hope people can grab onto something that you have said throughout that has been well woven throughout this whole conversation. And that something is, you know, don't give up determination and finding a purpose, finding something mm-hmm. that you love and doing it. And I wanted to know if you, if you had a message that you'd like to share to veterans or, or active duty members or anyone really out there who is struggling to find purpose. Um, I guess, particularly those who have, you know, finished their career in the military, um, regardless of the reason why. It's, uh, I think the bottom line is get outside yourself. Uh, you're not going to find purpose sitting on your couch, feeling sorry about yourself or chasing the bottom of a bottle or anything like that. You're only going to find it getting out and look for it. Uh, and it may not be what you think your purpose would be. Uh, I didn't think my purpose was going to be working for nonprofits promoting adaptive sports until I met people who ran nonprofits and produced adaptive sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, maybe something you're you're not interested at, at first. Maybe you think it's dumb or whatever. You'll try it anyway. You know, the worst that could happen is you lose a couple hours of your life that you probably were going to spend sitting on the couch drinking anyway. So you're not going to lose anything. Mm-hmm. And um, Get out there and look for it, and you'll know it when you find it. Um, I can't really be more specific than that. Uh, yeah. you know, everyone has their own purpose. And it doesn't have to be major. You don't have to change the damn world. Um, you, know, you can own a small piece of the pie um, doing anything that, that puts you or takes you toward you know the better version of yourself that you want to be. Um, whatever, whatever that is based on your values, and your judgments and stuff like that. Um, just get out and do it and look for it and you should eventually find it. And if, if you are struggling with that, well, there's groups like UD Warrior Foundation and Adaptive Sports Center and 39,999 other veteran service organizations out there that will um, help you out. Right. Well, thank you, Tim. Appreciate that very much. And um, so now um, we're going to have a little bit of fun. I'm going to, I always like to finish our podcast with just asking about some of your favorite things. So um, how about your favorite place that you visited? Man, favorite place. That's hard. There's been a lot of places. Um, <laughs> been all four U.S. states uh-huh. and a half dozen countries internationally. Um. Favorite place domestically, Colorado. Of course, there's a reason I'm moving there. The Gunnison River Valley um, is is by far my favorite place to be. Uh, and then on an international level, I think Japan. You know, I I was stationed there. I lived there for two years. Forgot to, you know, really immerse myself in it more than you would on a three vacation or whatever. And uh, you know, I still want to go back. There's still things I left undone there that I want to go do. And uh, the the people of Japan themselves are fun to be around. You know, they're it's it's so much different from what we're used to in Western society. Um, that you really have to 
kind of get there and experience it uh, for yourself. Right. You know, I've never met um, a person who has been stationed in Japan that hasn't absolutely fallen in love with it. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, just great, great stories. And, uh, you know, the culture and the people, everything. Um, I hope to yeah, make it there someday. <laughs> even if they weren't big enough before, I didn't want to go to Japan. I was like, oh, man, that's going to suck. I right. came out there, I didn't want to leave. You know, right. Before I got blown up, my career plan was to go back out to Japan and spend as much time stationed there as the Marine Corps allowed me before they forced me to come back to the U.S. Right, right. No, I hear that often, Tim. I hear that a lot. Um, how about your favorite pizza topping? Hmm, I'm going to say this just because Jamie is standing right behind me. It's pineapple. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and maybe, maybe I love it so much because, you know, I don't get to have it because she hates it on pizza. Oh, okay. Like, you won't even let me get a half and half pizza. Oh. If she's afraid the juices are going to migrate halfway across the pizza. Gotcha. Yeah. But, um, Can't have any pineapple contamination. Uh, it's, that's the best, though. And you got, you got the sweet and the tangy of the pineapple, uh-huh. you know, competing with the, the savory and the, the spicy of the pineapple, uh, the pepperoni and cheese and stuff like that. It just, it really makes it all come together. Yeah, you're making me hungry, Tim. <laughs> um, how about your favorite beer? Well, this one's obvious. If you heard me reference my dog's name earlier in the episode, his name is Shiner, and my favorite beer is Shiner. Yeah, um, I knew that. <laughs> Shiner Bach is the primary because um, it's available all the time, pretty much everywhere. Right. Um, but it's not even my favorite Shiner beer that I've ever had. Uh, my favorite was their 100th anniversary beer um, called uh, Commemorator. Oh, okay. They only made it one year, but it was a double block. I uh, see. So it was all the delicious high gravity, you know, density of a, of a, a double block. And, you know, it actually had a respectable six and a half percent beer uh, or alcohol content. So, you know, it hit you pretty good, but. You know, the flavors are balanced, and I love every sip of that beer. Cool. Um, I think a close number three would have to be Blasted Ale, though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Leon, Leon really has, he has a, a way with uh, with his brew tree, and I sorely miss that thing in my life. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to come visit y'all and, and uh, <laughs> have to know his concoctions. We would love that. Um, he still has his beer tree and, uh, you know, all of those great memories we used to have, Tim, in Virginia. Um, you know, sounds like we need to add a, a brew fest to the uh, Memorial Weekend. Hey, you know, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, there have been crazier saying. ideas, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about, this is the last one, how about your favorite sports team? Pretty much every team from Houston not named the Rockets. Okay. Um, my top two favorite teams would have to be, it's kind of a tie between the San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Texans, uh-huh. which... You know, it's it's a little hard to admit that I'm a fan of the Texans right now. It's a giant dumpster fire on Kirby Avenue. Uh, but yeah, um, but those are my teams. You, know, you can't you can't grow up in Texas without loving football. And uh, you know, it helps that Jamie's at University of Houston now. All right. So, you know, remained a fan of them since my time there. Uh-huh. Um, so we've caught a couple of their games and uh, basketball seasons. It's already underway. You know, the Spurs aren't what they were for the first 35 years of my life, where they won everything. Um, but, you know, hey, we won five titles, missed the playoffs once in a decade, in over two decades. So, 
Right. Um, you know, I think we had we had a good run. Yeah. Uh, well, you got to see him through the the highs and the lows. You yeah, know, you do. Uh, I mean, you you always have Coach Pop, and you can always develop some young players. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, who knows when when Coach Pop retires, if they'll uh, if Becky Hammond will take over the the role from him. Um, I think she'd make it. I think she'd make a, a terrific, um, you know, coach and looking forward to anything the Spurs do. There's, awesome. there's something about that team that just makes an easier report. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, Tim, um, it has been an absolute pleasure catching up with you and talking with you and, Thank you very, very much for sharing some of your story with us and also just how you have navigated the last 10 years um, of, of your life. And um, we we so appreciate you. Well, it was, it was great chatting with you again, uh, too, Sherry. It's been way too damn long since we've seen each other. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm glad I was able to come on here and, and speak to y'all a little bit, um, give you some content for your, your podcast and I really look forward to being able to see you again in person sometime, um, if not before May, in May. Okay. Well, you got a deal, bud. <laughs> <laughs> it was so nice to meet you, and I am very excited for your future. Thanks. It was <laughs> nice to meet you too, Maria. And right. good luck uh, trying to uh, fill in Sherry Beck's shoes. <laughs> yes, very big <laughs> shoes. We're going to miss her a lot. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, listen, Tim, my best to you and Jamie and, and also your family. And you take care and we'll be in touch, okay? All right. You too. All right. Alrighty. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.